a delight for me to be with you and uh, to speak on something that I think is more and more interesting to many people these days. Lots going on in the world, especially in the last couple of years, that has caused people to become more interested in the end times. And I think if you are interested in this, you're not alone. Uh, last summer, I, I did a similar seminar for our church, and uh, there were a lot of people who were interested in so we're going to be doing it again this summer. What we do in the summer at Grace Church is in July, we take the month of uh, July, Sunday mornings off from fellowship groups, which is our basically Sunday school classes for adults. And we focus on various seminars. And one of them, uh, so people can go to whatever seminar they're interested in, either hour and the morning, but uh, one of them is going to be again as recording in progress happening. And uh, so I'm, I'm excited to be a part of this. And uh, hopefully everything will be clear as I try to navigate between the PowerPoint and uh, my own notes and scripture that we'll be looking at um, just so we are on the same page. Uh, it's going to be impossible to cover every single nuance of every single view in eschatology. But I will try to do my best to do an overview and talk about some of the other views as well. <clears throat> while primarily advocating and explaining the pre-tribulational, pre-millennial view, which is what our church holds. And uh, if Mark is faithful, your church holds the same view. So uh, I assume that that's what he's been teaching you. <laughs> well, let's begin with a quote from uh, D.L. Moody, who, let me get my, uh, there we go who said, surely it is not wrong for us to think and talk about heaven. I like to locate it and find out all I can about it. I expect to live there through all eternity. If I were going to dwell in any place in this country, if I were going to make it my home, I would inquire about its climate, about neighbors. I would have about everything, in fact, that I could learn concerning it. If soon you were going to immigrate. This is the way you would feel. Well, we're all going to immigrate in a very little while. We're going to spend eternity in another world, a grand and glorious world where God reigns. Is it not natural that we should look and listen and try to find out who is already there and what is the route to take? And I think that captures the sentiment that every Christian should have. If this is going to be our future eternal destination, that we should be as interested in it and as excited to learn about it as possible and spend whatever time is necessary to understand it. I think sometimes Christians spend more time in studying soteriology uh, or maybe theology proper, the Godhead, sometimes even Christology, and even fight over various elements in those specific theological um, divisions. But eschatology becomes something that we feel completely insecure about because there's so many interpretations, so many views. It's intertwined with your understanding of dispensationalism and covenantalism. And so sometimes people give up on it and they just say, well, I hope my pastor one day will get to Revelation and uh, he'll explain everything to me. My encouragement for you this morning is to begin to read books on eschatology. And I'll mention a few of those even now. My top recommendation is a book by Paul Benware, Benware, B-E-N-W-A-R-E. And the book is called End Times Prophecy. Um, how many of you have heard of it? Just raise your hand. I can see pretty clearly. So, okay, there's a few hands went up. Yeah, so if you haven't um, looked at it or haven't heard of it, I'd encourage you to buy it. It's probably the 
the clearest and the easiest to digest in regards to information. He does engage with all the views and then explains uh, the weaknesses of the views and ultimately advocates for the pre-tribulational and premillennial understanding. There's also our pastor's book, John MacArthur's book, uh, The End is Near. That's a good survey of the future as well, if you haven't um, looked at that yet. But I recommend one or both of those books for you to consider as you get into this study. Now, as we get into this study, the reason that people become a little bit nervous about it is because of the word that you see on the screen in front of you. There are a lot of different views that are affiliated with eschatology, the premillennial understanding. In other words, we believe that Jesus will come back before the millennium and establish his kingdom. The amillennial view, there is no millennium. It's a spiritual number. It's a spiritual understanding that ultimately things kind of phase right into eternity. Post-millennial, the idea is that we're going to bring the millennial millennium into this world. We're going to improve this world. We're going to redeem the culture. And ultimately, we're going to improve it such that Jesus comes back. Dispensation is speculated with this. And that is an understanding of how God moves through history. Dispensations or covenants. Covenantalism would be the opposite side of the spectrum. And that is God works through covenants. Covenantal works, covenantal redemption, uh, covenant of law. And the pre, post, mid-trib. All those different positions. You know, is the church going to be raptured before the tribulation? In the middle of it? After? You know, are we going to endure the tribulation? And so... Uh, all those views are inter intertwined. Um, and then you kind of see a few of the other ones. Preterism, for example, Arsis Sproul was a partial preterist. In other words, part of the prophecies in uh, Matthew 24 and 25, the Olivet Discourse were fulfilled in AD 66 to AD 73, which was the Jewish war with Rome. And then part of those prophecies are yet to be fulfilled. And so we take it, those as futuristic primarily, but he took part of those as uh, fulfilled in history, and then some come forthcoming. And we know our sister is a faithful believer in heaven now. Uh, everything is perfectly understood by him now. Uh, but he was a partial preterist. And then you get into theonomy, theology, exactly what role does God have over this kingdom, over the people, the church, and this world. So the reason I bring that up is to say, I understand why people become a little bit nervous before they jump in into this study. But my encouragement is that we would put in the necessary effort because there are reasons for why we study eschatology. The first is consummation. The final story of the gospel is in our eschatological understanding. The final story of the gospel is a part of the eschatology that we should understand. So in Revelation chapter 21, this is what we read. John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people. And God himself will be among them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will no longer be any death, and there will no longer be any mourning, or crying, or pain. The first things have passed away. This is the culmination or the consummation of the gospel story. It's the zenith point of everything that God has been moving history toward. And the point 
of studying eschatology isn't to invent the most flawless and perfect system with no objections. I think every view will have objections to it. And so our goal is to try to come up with the most comprehensive and the most cohesive uh, understanding of eschatology as we look at it. But remember that this passage we just read ultimately reaches back to Genesis. You can see that he talks about the tabernacle of God is among men in verse 3. The idea is God is now dwelling with men again. The tabernacle was representative of God being with his people. And if you remember Genesis, it says that God walked with them. And God was with men in the Garden of Eden. So we're now going back to the Garden of Eden, fulfilling that goal where man and God can be once again reunited. And if you were to look at chapter 22, verse 14 of Revelation, it says that blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life. So now the tree of life, which was protected in Genesis, has been has become accessible to us. It's even better than the Garden of Eden in that regard. And so we understand that as we study the things of the future, we're ultimately trying to see the full story come together from Genesis to the end of human history, specifically when God and man can dwell once again together. That's the first reason why we study eschatology, to understand the final phase of the gospel. Now, the second reason is worship. I hope that you have a desire to worship him as you um, as you study eschatology. In Isaiah 43, verse 21, for example, and now I'll uh, have some of the passages on the screen and others I'll have to just read for you or you can follow along just because of time. But Isaiah 43, verse 21 says, The people whom I have formed for myself will declare my praise. The idea being that ultimately God demands praise and he created people to worship him and to praise him. Therefore, the study of eschatology should provoke worship and should provoke praise. And then we see in Revelation chapter 4, when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, O Lord, and our God to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and because of your will, they existed and were created. And so we understand that if that's the ultimate reflection of heaven and worship, and that is what we are aiming toward as well. First Corinthians 15, Paul says, when all things are subjected to him, then the son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him so that God may be all in all. And so now Jesus Christ basically gives up everything back to God the Father so that the Trinity can enjoy worship forever and ever. So God is moving history forward ultimately for his own glory. And you think about um, the hymn, How Great Thou Art. I love the ending of it. When Christ shall come with shouts of acclamation and take me home with joy shall fill my heart. Then I shall bow in humble adoration and there proclaim, my God, how great thou art. That's ultimately what we're aiming for, to worship God in perfect uh, bliss and in sinlessness. So the consummation of the gospel is a part of eschatology. 
ultimate worship is a part of eschatology. And three, blessing. Blessing. The book of Revelation opens and closes in the same way. Verse 3 of chapter 1 says, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and keep the things which are written in it for the time is near. And then the ending, and behold, I'm coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. In other words, his encouragement to try to read and understand and process what is in this final book of the Bible, the aim of that is that you would be blessed. I think all of us desire that as part of our daily experience. In other words, we have to be willing to put in the effort as we seek a blessing from God. Understandably, that even if we spend 40 hours a week for the rest of our lives studying Revelation, studying the other passages in the Bible that have to do with eschatology, we maintain the, the line that we cannot cross ultimately. The line is in Deuteronomy 29, 29. And I'm sure you've heard that verse from a pastor who can't answer your question. You ask him a question that's difficult. He says, well, the secret things belong to the Lord. And uh, he's not uh, just deflecting, partially deflecting. He's, uh, he's just saying, look, there are certain things we don't understand. And we can't explain because God hasn't fully revealed them to us. But what he has revealed belong to us and to our sons forever that we may observe all the words of the law. And that's the idea here. Look, the one who understands and keeps these words of the prophecy is blessed. And so ultimately, blessing does flow from to someone who studies eschatology. And then the fourth reason is holiness. In 2 Peter chapter 3, toward the end of the book, Peter says, as he talks about eschatology and the unraveling of creation, as God judges, everything the day of the lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up since all these things are to be destroyed in this way what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness the entire book of second peter is about godliness it is a theme that repeats over and over and over and gives us a portrait in chapter two of the ungodly, the false teachers, the false prophets, those who are obsessed with lust and sin and greed and arrogance. But he said, but you, the godly, in light of the future eschatological events, you need to pursue holiness and godliness. So I think as we get deeper and deeper into the study of the end times, it should provoke us to pursue holiness more fervently because of what we know from 1 John chapter 3, verse 3. It begins in the end of chapter 2, really, where it says, little children abide in him. When he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. In other words, when he comes and we see him face to face, we're not going to look away is the literal idea, look down on the ground because we're embarrassed and we're ashamed at his coming. The context here, verse 29, if he is righteous, everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. And then verse 3 of chapter 3, or verse 2, we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself as he is pure. So the idea being ultimately our final transformation into Christ's likeness takes place when we see him face to face. This is one of the clearest verses that our sanctification is progressive 
until we see Jesus face to face. It doesn't end in this life. But if you have this hope to be with him, to see him, then you purify that yourself and you pursue Christ-like holiness. And so that is the ultimate aim as well of our study of eschatology. And finally, I hope it prompts anticipation within you. If you were to travel somewhere, kind of the beginning of the study this morning, Moody's quote, you know, when you want to travel somewhere, you think about that place. And if you go to a vacation spot, you're going to be kind of studying it. You'd like to understand exactly where you're going and where you're going to be staying, what you're going to be seeing. And I'd say the more exotic a location you'll be vacationing in, the more excited you'll be about it and the more research you'll do ahead of time. Well, there's no more exotic location than heaven. Therefore, the encouragement should be, let's study. Let's anticipate it. Let's be excited about it. I just flew back from Washington, D.C. this week. And I was, as I was landing in Washington, D.C. a couple of days earlier, and as I was leaving, I couldn't help but look through the window just to see the city from the top and anticipating Washington, D.C., the capital of our nation, from the air. And that's just a minor illustration of something that we get excited about as we approach a new city or a new destination, more so in regard to heaven. We should be excited to be pursuing heaven. And so 2 Peter 3.13, Peter says, According to his promise, we're looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. For our citizenship is in heaven, Paul says, from which we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I hope that describes you accurately. You are eagerly waiting for Jesus Christ, your Savior. You are looking for the new heaven and the new earth. So, as we think about, okay, this is why we're going to spend the next hour studying eschatology. Hopefully that gives you a reason to at least pay attention for the next hour and uh, do whatever you can to capture the data and hopefully go deeper in your personal study. As you look at eschatology from the grand view, this is human history in a snapshot. You have the past, you have the present, you have the future, and we are currently in the church age. So everything to the left of that, you can see has taken place. And now we're living in the church age and there is no specific timeline given in scripture as to when that will end other than the next event in human history is the rapture. That is what we'll be talking about and advocating. After the rapture, we have the tribulation. At the end of the tribulation, the seven-year period, is the second coming, which ultimately launches the millennial kingdom of a thousand years. And we do believe that is literal and explain why in a minute. And then we have the final judgments, and then we enter the eternal state. And so that is a simple way to describe the events in human history. And our goal is to understand it most accurately and most um, co co cohesively. Now, I already went through some of these, uh, so I'm going to skip ahead just for the sake of time. But just to kind of give you the mo main two views today are covenantal and dispensational interpretations of history. And so you have covenantal or historic premillennialism, which typically is post-tribulational. So you can see the church age, then the tribulation and the rapture and the second coming 
are unified in a single event, then you have the millennial kingdom and they have an eternal state. Dispensational premillennialism, that is where we are as a church, as a seminary, we have church age, rapture, tribulation, second coming, kind of what I said in the previous slide. And so then as we get into the next event in human history, we begin with the rapture. Now, if something isn't clear, please note it. And then at the Q&A time, you're welcome to ask that question. I am going to try to talk as clearly as possible, but also rapidly. And with my Russian accent, I know you're going to be missing stuff. So the rapture, that's the set, next event in human history. And so we look to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, where Paul explains the rapture. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be cut up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Where the of the rapture comes from is this specific passage and the word that is underlined. The word in the Greek is arpazo. And its Latin translation is rapturo, which is where we get the word rapture. And it means to be carried off somewhere by force. So that's the idea of the rapture, the primary passage for this. Now, it's not the only passage necessary, but it's one of those key passages. Who be a part of the rapture? Well, according to this passage, it's the dead Christians from the church age who will be resurrected. The second category are people who are alive, who are believers when he returns. And so those two groups of people meet Jesus as part of the rapture. The reason that we don't believe the Old Testament saints are part of the rapture is because they're not in Christ. Remember, it says those who are in the Lord, right? Dead in Christ. If you look at verse 16 again, the very end of verse 16, and the dead in Christ. So that idea that in Christ formula appears over 100 times in the New Testament signifies those who are believers under the new covenant. That is why general dispensationists conclude the rapture is limited to believers who are dead and the believers in Christ who are alive. And the question is, how will this take place? Well, we'll meet him in the sky. So in other words, suddenly there is this uh, separation of this of the Christian from this earth and then connection with him in the air. And Paul explains this in 1 Corinthians when he says, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. So we connect this verse to the idea of the rapture in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Now, the question is, why the rapture? What's the purpose of the rapture? Well, verse 17 of the same passage says, it is to be reunited with the Lord, to be forever, to be always with the Lord. So that's the first reason. The second reason is glorification, so that our body is changed. What was imperishable becomes now, what was perishable now becomes imperishable. But the third reason is the rewards that we will experience for a life of faithfulness for the Lord. And so in 2 Corinthians 5.9, Paul says, therefore, we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now note, 
that phrase judgment seat of Christ is not the same thing as the great white throne of judgment. You've probably heard by now that there are two types of judgments. Bima, that's the idea here, and then the great white throne. So he's talking about something unique, and I'll explain that in a minute. So the judgment seat of Christ is where we'll appear so that each one of us may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to his what he has done, whether good or bad. The Bema seat in the ancient world had to do with an awards ceremony. It's when a runner would finish a race and he would appear before the final um, panel of individuals, oftentimes the emperor or senators or some kind of rulers, leaders in a local location. And after some kind of a competition, he would come up the stairs. So in Rome, he would come up towards the temple of Jupiter. Jupiter was the main god in the city of Rome. And he would come up the stairs down Via Sacra, which is the, the most holy street in ancient Rome. You would go through the Colosseum area. Then you go down the street towards in the Roman Forum where the temples were and the Senate House was and kind of like the center of political life in ancient Rome. And the end was capitalized, the, the temple of Jupiter. And then you would be given this crown, a wreath, as a symbol of victory, as a reward. That's the terminology that Paul uses in 2 Corinthians 1. It's this awards ceremony. So all the saints must appear before the award uh, ceremony, and as part of the award ceremony before the judgment seat of Christ. And our deeds will be evaluated. Now, we know from other parts of Scripture that we're not talking about the evaluation of heaven and hell. You know, for sin or not sin. For example, in Hebrews 10, 12, it says, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all, he sat down at the right hand of God. So we know that if you have been, if your sins have been forgiven, you will not be judged for those sins again. The most famous passage in this area is Romans 8, 1. There's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So we know other passages in scripture indicate that the Christian will not be judged according to his sins in regards to salvation or not salvation, heaven or hell. First Corinthians 3, as I mentioned it or listed here, and I don't have it listed, so I'll read it for you, or you can follow along since it's an extended passage. First Corinthians 3, beginning in verse 9, we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God, which was given to me like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another's building on it. But each one must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which, has, which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. So this gives us more of a description of what 2 Corinthians 5 talks about. In other words, the award ceremony will be an evaluation of your faithfulness or unfaithfulness as a fellow worker, verse 9, as a worker for Christ in the context of the church. Verse 16 says, don't you know that you're the temple of God? And then verse 17, if anyone destroys the temple of God, God, it will destroy him. God is holy. 
So in other words, the context here is ministry in the temple of God, ministry in the church. And the fundamental principle that's expected is that you're building on Christ. But then certain things that we do will be classified as gold, silver, and precious stones. And then other works will be classified as wood, hay, straw. And so in other words, we're building, figuratively speaking, with material. Some will survive the judgment and others won't. And so God will, Jesus Christ will put our acts of ministry in the church through the evaluation process, 2 Corinthians 5, and then reward us for what we have done. And so I think that's where motivation comes into place. Were you motivated by selflessness and Christ's honor or selfishness and self-promotion as you were serving? Were you doing this in the power of the Holy Spirit? Second First uh, Peter chapter 4 talks about, verses 10 and 11, talks about serving and employing your gift of service in the power of the Spirit, speaking in the power of the Spirit for the glory of God. So our motivation is a part of the evaluation process. And I think that's what we need to say. Okay, this is the judgment seat, the BMI seat, of evaluation of our faithfulness and ministry in the church. And so in that moment, you can tie in First John 2, 28. Are we going to be embarrassed? Are we going to be ashamed when we see him face to face that we weren't faithful? We weren't fighting sin like we should have because we were more preoccupied with this world than with faithfulness to him. So the rapture, ultimately leads us into this rewards ceremony with Christ. But also the rapture will deliver protection. And so in Revelation chapter 3, verse 10, we understand this passage is not simply referring to the, the historic church, but also to the future believers. Because you've kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, the hour which is about to come upon the whole world, to those who dwell on the earth. So there's the idea that God will protect his people from the upcoming final judgment. Something similar appears in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. We are waiting for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. In chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians verse 9, Paul says, God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, certainly the primary meaning in those passages is eternal wrath and protection from final judgment in the lake of fire. But there is an implication that God will protect us from the judgment that will be upon us. And then finally, the marriage supper of the Lamb. That was one of the questions submitted. When is the marriage supper of the Lamb? What is the purpose of it? And so on. So we get the idea of the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation chapter 19. So after the rewards are given out, after we experience 1 Corinthians 3, 2 Corinthians 5, we enter the marriage supper of the Lamb and we read, Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to Him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. So now we just talked about those righteous acts, and they have been rewarded for those righteous acts. That's how we know that the Bema seat precedes the marriage supper of the Lamb, that little phrase. Then he said to me, Right, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. 
And he said to me, these are the true words of God. And so if you think about the marriage supper of the Lamb imagery as the fulfillment of the love story where God promises a bride to his son in return for his sacrifice for her redemption. And so now this is the culmination of that story where finally Jesus has been waiting for his bride and now she is given to him. And so those are the five purposes of the rapture with various passages supporting them. Now, getting into the timing of the rapture as one of the big questions in the church these days. And it is a question that we need to carefully think about because of the number of individuals who land on post-tribulational rapture or pre-tribulational rapture. In other words, before the tribulation or after the tribulation. The reason that we believe in the pre-tribulational rapture is because when you begin to look at all the passages, the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, 25, and you look at 1 Thessalonians, you look at 1 Corinthians, you look at Revelation passages, and you begin to lay out all the details that are described in the coming, the return of Jesus Christ. For, let's put that as a symbol umbrella, the return of Jesus. How do we know if there's one more return, which is the rapture slash the second coming, the right column, or two returns, the rapture, and then seven years later, after the tribulation, the second coming. Well, because the details do not line up in all those passages. So we have one of two options. Either there's a contradiction in scripture between passages, and we make an assumption that the Bible doesn't contradict itself. Because the Bible is inerrant, it's inspired, therefore it cannot contradict itself. And so now, if there's a difference in the different passages between the events described, then we have to conclude we're looking at two different events. And so you can kind of see on the list the differences, right? In one place, we meet him in the air. In another place, he, his feet land on the Mount of Olives. There is no judgment when we talk about the rapture other than what I just described, the Bema seat of rewards. But then the judgment are significant, the goats and the sheep and the separation and eternal lake of fire and on and on and on. In chapter in number three, nothing is said about the kingdom, the future kingdom. Everything is all about the kingdom in other passages. You know, the dead and the living are given glorified bodies, whereas in the second coming, only the dead are saints are glor are given glorified bodies. One occurs before the wrath of God, the other one after the day of the Lord. One is imminent, you know, in a twinkling of an eye. We just don't know what's going to happen. James 5 talks about the judge is at the door. He's ready to come in. Others are preceded by signs, so it's not as imminent. Christ returns to heaven with the church. You know, we can connect, we can we re re reunite with him, and then we go to heaven. In other passages, he lands on the Mount of Olives, he enters Jerusalem, and he establishes his kingdom. After the rapture, believers are removed, and only the unbelievers are left on the earth. You can see that at the end of Luke 17. In other places, the unbelievers are removed, and only believers are left on the earth. And then the final one is the implication on creation significant geographical changes in one air part, well, some passages, whereas others have no significant geographic changes or no geographic changes. So because of that, we say the there is a difference between the tribulation, the rapture and the second coming. One is before the tribulation, one is after the tribulation. And so 
to summarize the rapture discussion, the saints are raptured to heaven, the unbelievers enter a seven-year period called the tribulation. We experience the judgment of rewards in heaven, and then for the rest of the time, while the tribulation is happening on this earth, the marriage supper of the Lamb is taking place in heaven with Christ and the church. And so to look at it from this point of view, this is a chart from Pastor John's book, The End is Near. You can kind of see the events taking place in a little bit more specificity. Okay, so that's the period we just described. So if you look at the judgment of Christ and you look at the tribulation period right after the rapture, the next event in human history is the tribulation. And so that's where I'd like to take us next, the tribulation. <clears throat> the first question is, what is the purpose of the tribulation? Well, in Daniel chapter 12, verse 7, we read the following. I heard the man dressed in linen who was above the waters on the, of the river as he raised up his right hand and he left toward heaven and his left toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for time, times and a half. That's three and a half years. And as soon as they finish shattering the part of the holy people, all these events will be completed. So this takes us into the beginning of the tribulation. But the goal behind all that is to get Israel to a place where they will recognize the Messiah. And we'll look at some passages of Israel's repentance in a second. Okay. The second reason for the tribulation is the judgment of the godless. So in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 12, it says this. And 2 Thessalonians talks about the tribulational period, the men of lawlessness. And he ends that paragraph by saying, that all may be judged who did not believe the truth, but took pleasure in wickedness. So the period of the tribulation, that is where ultimately it leads the people. Also, we have an example of salvation of the Gentiles. And so in Revelation chapter 6, verse 11, there is an insight that people are still getting saved. And so it says they will be killed as the others had been, and the number would be completed. In other words, in the tribulation, now remember, this is as part of the seals that are being opened up in the tribulation. And so the prophecy that some people have yet to be martyred for Christ indicates that in the tribulational period, if all the saints are gone before the start of the tribulation, then whoever is martyred in the tribulation for Christ must have gotten saved during the tribulation. And therefore, we believe that there is an allowance for salvation in the tribulation, and some of those individuals will actually get martyred. In Matthew 24, verse 22, it's one of those famous verses that um, Jesus says as part of the Olivet Discourse. He says the following, Unless those days the tribulation itself had been cut short no life would have been saved but for the sake of the elect those days will be cut short so now you have elect in the tribulational period who were not raised in uh, in the part of the rapture because they weren't believers yet 
So as we look at the tribulation, the simple way to think about it is the, through the word devastation. And Joel describes this in this way. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and it will come as destruction from the Almighty. And then in Zephaniah, near is the great day of the Lord. Near and coming very quickly. Listen, the day of the Lord, in it the warrior cries out bitterly. A day of wrath is that day. A day of trouble and distress. A day of destruction and desolation. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. A day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and the high corner towers. I will bring distress on men so that they will walk like the blind. Because they have sinned against the Lord and their blood will be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither the silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them on the day of the Lord's wrath. And all the earth will be devoured in the fire of his jealousy, for he will make a complete end, indeed a terrifying one, of all the inhabitants of the earth. So this is a simple preview of what the tribulation will be like. And you can think of some passages in the book of Revelation, where it talks about Armageddon and the wars that will take place at the end of time and how many people will be killed. Now, we understand the day of the Lord with two meanings. One is, yes, there were certain previews of the day of the Lord in historic times. God's judgment was described over Israel, over Judah, as the day of the Lord. And so we see some of that as taking place as a preview about the, uh, of the final day of the Lord, which is the tribulational period. But as we get deeper into it, the tribulation can be seen with this overview. Okay, and that is the chart in front of you. Okay, So as we get into it, I'll kind of leave this up for us for a minute, but I want to take us to Daniel chapter 9, verse 24. You're going to have to go there just so we can look at some of the details together. So Daniel chapter 9, verse 24. Seventy weeks, or 490 years, have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Before I continue, there's some kind of an odd sound. Are you okay? Can you hear me fine? Okay, it must be on my end. Okay. Um, verse 25. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the Messiah, the Prince, there will be seven weeks, which is 49 years, and 62 weeks, 434 years. It will be built again. The plaza and moat, even in the times of distress. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. 
But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering, and on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate. Even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. So in the Old Testament, this is one of those key passages speaking of the tribulational period. And from this passage, we get a little bit of a, a insight into how the chronology develops. The reason I read it is because we need to understand the timing of seven weeks, 70 weeks, and 62 weeks, and so on. So various scholars have tried to pinpoint the beginning of this period in human history. And it seems that the best way for us to understand this is to put it into kind of three specific stages. One is the decree that Cyrus gives to Nehemiah to rebuild Jerusalem in the year 444 BC. Okay, so if you want to put a date somewhere in there, the decree is 444 BC when Cyrus, King Cyrus, Isaiah 45, 1 calls him my anointed. God calls him that even though he's not the Messiah, he's not the chosen one, he's not the anointed one, but in the use of the idea is that God chose him specifically to begin the process of bringing his people back from exile in 444 BC. So there's a decree that's given for seven weeks, that is 39 years, which takes us to the year 395 BC. From 395 BC, we see 62 weeks, right? 62 weeks. And then, so that's verse 25. That takes us to the year AD 30. That is one of the reconstructions on when we can begin the process of this prophecy. There's an actual decree that takes place, and we know it, it's historically verifiable. And then we know that 62 weeks later takes us to the year AD 30. And that is one of the key dates as an option for the execution or the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Then you get into the period, verse 26, right? The times of the Gentiles. And so now that is the undefined period. That's the period we live in right now. The times of the Gentiles, we don't know. That's the gap. Until you get to verse 27, you get into the seven-year period. And that is the tribulation. So if you think about it this way, you have the historic element ending in AD 30. And then the times of the Gentiles, that's the church age. That's the period we're currently in. And then the next thing that will take place is the tribulation. He will make a firm covenant with many for one week. One week is seven years. So we believe that is the beginning of the tribulation. When the Antichrist signs a peace treaty providing peace to Israel. That launches, according to 927, the seven-year or one-week period, 70th week, with the tribulation. And then it says in the middle of that week, so three and a half years into it, he will put a stop to all the sacrifices and grain offerings. And he will commit the abomination of desolation. And then we see the second half of the tribulation. So I'm going to get into a little bit more detail, but that's kind of the high level understanding when the tribulation takes place, how we get to the chronological reconstruction from prior human history, and how do we get to where we need to be in regards to the future um, prophecies related. So 
as you think about the tribulation, it is destruction. It's total desolation. The Bible also calls it Jacob's distress. It also calls it the wrath of God. And that also here, it's called the 70th week of Daniel. The simple idea is that Satan has complete reign on this earth with the Antichrist and with the beast. So you have the unholy trinity running the earth for seven years. That is not to say that the Holy Spirit isn't active in a salvific way. He is because people are getting saved and we'll talk about that. But that is to say that the, a lot of the restraints that God used until the time of the tribulation have been removed. Second Thessalonians chapter 2 talks about this. When the, when the one who restrains is removed. So the idea is something is currently restraining sin, ultimate um, debauchery on this earth, lawlessness. Some people take it to be the Holy Spirit. Other people take it to be the church. The one who restrains is removed. Then more lawlessness takes place. Okay, so as we get into the tribulation, there are three phases to the tribulation. The first half, we talked about this, the middle point, and then the last half. Now, some of the players in the tribulation are first the Antichrist. Okay, the Antichrist is the first player in the tribulation. And so we have to understand him as an individual. The term only appears in 1 John 2.18. That's the only place you'll find the Antichrist as a term. 1 John 2.18. And the idea being somebody who stands in the place of Christ. It's a pseudo-Christ. It's a replacement of Christ. In other words, we're talking about opposite, an individual who is in opposition, and a substitute for Christ. And that does speak to his character and to his intentions. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, the Antichrist is called, in verse 3, the man of lawlessness, the son of destruction, which speaks to his personal wickedness. In Revelation chapter 13 and in chapter 17, he's described as the one who's working with the beast or the beast. And then in Daniel 7, 8, he's described as the little horn. And because we don't have time to get through all those passages, those are your key passages describing who the Antichrist is, the man of lawlessness, the beast, and then the little horn. The little horn in Daniel 7 is all about power, war, aggression, pride, hostility. So if you go back later and read Daniel 7, every time you see the little horn, that's a reference to the Antichrist. So in other words, we're talking about a false messiah who is trying to establish himself as Israel's messiah because he was able to accomplish peace in the Middle East. And if we think about his personality, he has great leadership ability. He's a great speaker. He has great political ability. He solves complex problems. He's intelligent. He's a great military leader, and he's very crafty. And let me just give you a list of passages to write down to see where all of the, these characteristics come from. Daniel 7, verse 8 through 26. Daniel 9, 26 and 27. Daniel 11, 36 through 45. 
Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 through 10. Revelation 13, 1 through 9. And Revelation 17, 8 through 14. As you consider the Antichrist's career, it is turbulent and chaotic. So he begins his career in the tribulation as the leader of a Western nation. We get that in Daniel 7, 8. Daniel 7, 19 through 26. And he begins to conquer nations. We get that in Revelation chapter 6, verse 2. Daniel 7, 8. That he's powerful enough to do something that unites the world and he becomes victorious. So he then ultimately gains enough renown and enough influence that he's able to accomplish a peace treaty in the Middle East and becomes the protector of Israel. That's what Daniel 9.27 talks about when we just read it, that he is able to do a firm covenant. He's able to establish a firm covenant, that is the peace treaty in Israel. Now, you have to understand that even today in Israel, there is this anticipation and preparation to rebuild the third temple. And uh, I've been in Israel a couple times now, and I've talked to people who say that they have blueprints already in place for the third temple. Even on the Temple Mount, which is the flat area, recently there was some violence that you probably read that in the news. But even in the Temple Mount, you do have the, 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 uh, the mosque that is the sacred place for the uh, Muslim, Muslim people. But you can actually build another temple alongside the mosque according to the Old Testament uh, regulations in Ezekiel 40 through 48, you can do that and they can coexist side by side. So most likely the best understanding of this period is that the Antichrist will be able to create peace and then ultimately a temple will be built. And that's why it says, and sacrifices will take place in verse 27. He will put a stop to sacrifices and grain offerings. In other words, they were beginning to take place. But then all of a sudden, after the peace treaty is signed, he will seize them. He will fulfill the abomination of desolation and ultimately, of course, offend people. So as you look at this, this entire uh, career, he's able to accomplish success militarily. He creates a 10 power or 10 country confederacy. Revelation 13, 5 talks about this. Daniel 7, 24 to 27 talks about this. And so as he begins to continue to... Um, become more and more influential. In Revelation chapter 13, it says something unique about him. And so beginning in verse 1, the dragon, that's Satan, stood on the sand of the seashore. Then I saw a beast, that is the Antichrist, coming up out of the sea, having ten horns. Those are your ten countries. And, the seven, and seven heads, that's the idea of complete power. And on his horns were ten diadems, and on his head were blasphemous. I was like a leopard. And if you go back to Daniel, you know that the leopard is reflecting Greece. And in his feet were like those of a bear. That is reflecting the Medo-Persian Empire. And his mouth was like a mouth of a lion. That is reflecting Babylonian Empire. And the dragon gave him his power and his throne and his great authority. So now Satan is empowering the Antichrist. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain. So the idea is that now he has been assassinated and his fatal wound was healed. 
So there's this temporary setback, seemingly an assassination plot, successful for a season, but then he is revived, and the whole earth was amazed and followed the beast, the Antichrist. They worshiped the dragon, Satan, because he gave his authority to the beast, and they worshiped the beast, the Antichrist, saying, who is like the Antichrist, the beast, who's able to wage war with him? And then talks about his blasphemies, his arrogant words. And for 42 months, three and a half years, he's doing this. And he opens his mouth, blasphemy against God. So this is a description of him being supernaturally empowered by Satan to rule the world and becomes the dictator of the world because of his miraculous recovery from a fatal wound. And then, verse 11 of the same chapter, he has an assistant. And then another beast. This is the false prophet coming out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke like a dragon. In other words, he's also reflecting satanic convictions and satanic teaching. He exercises all the authority of the first beast. So he's supporting and extending the influence of the Antichrist. And he makes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast, the Antichrist, whose fatal wound was healed. So now you see the holy, the unholy trinity taking place, right? Satan empowering both the Antichrist and the second beast, which is most likely the false prophet or reflecting the leader of the false religion. So the three of them work together to blaspheme God, to seduce the world, to create a significant empire and ultimately to create peace in Israel and ultimately to commit the abomination of desolation. And then you look at verse 13. He performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down out of heaven to the earth in the presence of men. So he's got the miraculous power like Elijah. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which was given to him to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth make an image to the beast who had the wound of the sword and him come to life. And it was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast would even speak and cause as many as do not worship the beast of the, the image of the beast to be killed. So now you have more supernatural activity taking place that keeps seducing people toward the worship of Satan, the worship of the Antichrist. This takes place so that people, according to verse 4, would worship the dragon, Satan, he finally gets what he always wanted. He tells Jesus, bow down and worship me. Remember that? In Matthew 4, Luke 4. If you think back to the prophetic passages about the fall of Lucifer in Isaiah and Ezekiel, in Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, it does talk about him saying, I will be like the most high God. I will sit on the holy mountain. In other words, he always had this aspiration to be like God. In other words, worship. And so he finally gets that. And so he becomes the dictator of the world via Antichrist. And he begins to persecute the holy people as part of his leadership plan. Now, in the second half of the tribulation. That's when he turns on the people of God, Israel, and begins to persecute them. And one way to explain this is back in chapter 12, he wanted to destroy the woman, Israel, who was clothed with the sun and the moon, and she gave birth to the child. 
but God protected her. So that is a historic reference back to the birth of Jesus Christ, where Herod wanted to kill Jesus. And so Satan was trying to find ways to destroy the baby Jesus, but he was ultimately protected. He becomes uh, the reflection, the Messiah of Israel. Ultimately, verse 7 says there's a war between Michael and the angel and his dra- and the dragon, in other words, Satan, until he is now, verse 9, cast out or thrown down from heaven. So it's probably a reflection of something that did happen or maybe will happen in the future. And there's a debate on whether this is a historic time when God casts Satan out of heaven, when he becomes goes from being Lucifer to being Satan, or this is a future event where God ultimately casts Satan from heaven. He can no longer come and appear like in Job 1 and Job 2 with the sons of God. So I lean towards the latter view, that this is a future event where God will permanently banish Satan from heaven because we have an example of Job 1 and 2. We have Satan asking Jesus to sift Peter as wheat. Remember that? So there seems to be some contact that Satan still has today with heaven. And so this seems to be more of a prophetic statement about the future. Either way, there's anger by Satan for being completely banished. And so for the last three and a half years, after he commits the abomination of desolation in Daniel 9.27, we saw that already. He's now aggressively pursuing the people of God toward destruction. Now, the term abomination of desolation, we have to understand that it has a historic precedent. Back in the year 167 to 164 BC, if you know your history of ancient Israel, there was a war that took place between Egypt and Syria, and they were constantly fighting over Israel, but also on the territory of Israel. And finally, a king by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes IV, he was a Syrian king, he comes and he commits the abomination of desolation. In other words, he sacrifices a pig on the Holy of Holies in the temple, in the second temple that has been rebuilt now, And that provokes the Maccabean Rebellion. And for the next three years, 167 to 164 BC, Maccabean, Judas Maccabees was the father who started the rebellion. His sons followed him or fought with him and then ultimately succeeded him as as, uh, rulers. That establishes the Maccabean dynasty, the Hasmonean dynasty also. But what prompts all this is this abomination of desolation. If you want to read the details about that, you can read 1st and 2nd Maccabees. Those are non-canonical historical books from ancient Jewish or Israel's history. So this reference in Daniel 9, 27, the language that he uses to describe a future event when the Antichrist will do something similar, but the difference is he sacrificed a pig, Antiochus IV, whereas the Antichrist brings in his image into the Holy of Holies, into the temple, and we understand how Israel feels feels about making an image of God, right? Let's go back to Exodus chapter 20. And so that becomes a defiling act in the temple in the Holy of Holies, and that provokes Israel. And they realize that who we thought was the Messiah, the Antichrist, he's not the Messiah of Israel because a true Messiah would never do that. He would never defile the Holy of Holies. Now, as you think about all this taking place, we talked about the second beast. The second beast being the false prophet. And he is supporting the first beast, the Antichrist. He's 
promoting satanic worship. And don't, don't necessarily jump to the conclusion that people are literally worshiping Satan, like we have the satanic cults today. They are, you know, Paul says any, any worship that is not directed to a true God is demonic. And so it could be a false religion. And because of the language in Revelation 17 and 18 about the harlot of Babylon, the whore of Babylon, riding the beast, again, in cahoots with the Antichrist, most likely it's symbolic to describe a false religious system that is established and prom promoted and really buttressed by the Antichrist and the false prophet as they work together to establish world worship of Satan. And in contrast with the bride of Christ who is dressed in white, the true church, the pure church that is going to be raptured and be with Christ. So the, the juxtaposition of the harlot with the pure bride seems to indicate false religion and true religion, a true church and a false church. Whether you want to conclude it's the Catholic church or some other religion. It's it's all speculative, but you know, the Catholic Church certainly has enough power in the world today that it could easily rise to that level and ultimately become partners with the Antichrist in order to promote false religion. She is called the mother of all harlots, which suggests an ecumenical religious movement. Of all the other cults and all the other false religions, she becomes the mother of all of them. So there is an element of um false religion being imposed on the people. And the number 666 comes into the picture in the middle of all this. Back in chapter 3 of Revelation, verse 16, he says, He causes small and great and the rich and the poor and the free and the slave to be given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead. And he provides that no one will be able to buy or sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the name, number of his name, Here's the wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast for the number that is of a man and his number is 666. So the idea that the number is of a man, that is not a definite article. If you've heard about the Legacy Standard Bible translation, one of the unique features is that we made sure that it was an indefinite. It's the number 666. The Greek language carefully says that this is just a symbolic idea. 666 is a human reflection. Man will never attain to the perfection of number seven, which is reserved for God, or total control, total power. And so you can see in your LSB, if you have one, that there's a slight difference between the other translations. And the goal is to indicate that qualitatively, we're talking about something that reflects mankind, 666. So it could be an actual tattoo, it could be just a chip in your hand, it could be something else, the mark, whatever the mark is, but it doesn't have to be literally 666, and the Greek carefully makes that clear, and you can see that in the Legacy Standard Bible. So now we're in the tribulation. Lots of destruction, we'll talk about this as we get into the judgment from seals to trumpets to bowls in just a few minutes, and I know time is coming up. I know, I understand that we're getting almost there. In 12 minutes, we're going to cover the rest of history, the whole future. But I want to do, quickly say that people are getting saved. We saw that in Revelation chapter 6. There are martyrs who are yet to be martyred. Futurist language. So how do people know about the gospel? Well, first of all, the angels, right? Once Every so often in Revelation, the angel is flying. 
and he calls people to repentance. And we have to conclude some people repent. In Revelation chapter 11, you have the two witnesses who have supernatural power, and they're calling people to repentance. In Revelation 7 and 14, we have the 144,000, those who are sent out in the tribulation to call people to repentance. Obviously, there's no indication that the word of God just disappears off the planet. So the Bible is still around, and people who heard the gospel who hopefully now believe and repent, unfortunately, they have to live through the tribulation as part of the consequence of not believing before it started, but they'll still have access to the truth. And of course, anything that people left behind that is reflecting of the gospel, whether it's Christian books or uh, Christian mess sermons and on and on and on. So there's still access to the truth, and the people will get saved as we know that. Now, ultimately... In Revelation 7, 9, it says Jewish people and Gentile people do get saved. After these things, I looked and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count from every nation, all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hand. The tribulation has already begun. The seals have already been poured out. And now all of a sudden we have more people from tribes and tongues and nations are getting saved. So there's that example that, yes, people are getting saved. And that was one of the questions submitted for this conversation. And the Gentiles get saved. In Revelation 6, 9, in the fifth seal, the souls are getting saved. In Zephaniah 3, 9, it says that the Old Testament people are getting saved. In other words, the Jewish people also will be saved. Now, as we get into the actual judgment of God that begins in Revelation chapter 6, the chart in front of you is a summary of the tribulation, and everything begins with the first seal. That is the Antichrist coming to power on a white horse, and he has a crown, which means he is victorious. The second seal is all about war breaking out everywhere. Remember, he comes to destroy, to war, as Satan of old, he always came to kill and to destroy. John 8, 44 talks about that. And so now his representative, the Antichrist, causes warfare everywhere. In other words, there's unprecedented world conflict. The third seal is famine. What follows war is famine, typically. And so you have a black horse come out and people are starving. The fourth seal is death. That's the pale horse. A quarter of the world population will die because of war and various supernatural acts as animals kill people. The fifth seal is the vision of the martyrs under the throne. All this is in Revelation chapter 6. And so they're praying out to God, asking how long, how long, how long before you have vengeance for those who are martyred for your name. And then the sixth seal is cosmic disturbance with the sun, the moon, the stars, the heavens are beginning to roll up. And so things go black. Now, this isn't fine. We see more of that in future judgment. But this is the beginning, and it's so devastating that people begin to cry out for the rocks and the mountains to fall on them and to cover them. The seventh seal is silence in heaven for 30 minutes. Silence in heaven for 30 minutes, and then the trumpets begin to take place. So everything I kind of gave you a preview of Satan's activity, the Antichrist's activity, you can see how it fits in to various parts of the seven-year period, right? The Antichrist being there, Israel's protected, false worship everywhere, the abomination of desolation. And now, in the middle of it all, the trumpets begin to take place. And so the trumpets 
are right in the middle. So the seven seals are on the far left. The middle is the trumpets. And you can see the passages. And by the way, I sent this uh, PowerPoint to Mark. And so if you want it, you can share it. I know there's a lot of content and uh, it may be helpful to just have it for future reference. I don't mind you having it. So the seven trumpets quickly. The first one is a third of the grass vegetation and the fruit is all destroyed, causing more death. The second trumpet is the sea turns to blood. A third of the sea creatures die. A third of the ships are destroyed. So there's a lot of naval destruction. And the third animals and less food available for people. The fourth trumpet is a third of the portion of the sun, moons, and stars are darkened. In other words, God is changing the, the creation order itself. The reason I said earlier that cosmic disasters in the sixth seal isn't comprehensive is because we see more of that happening in the fourth trumpet, right? The heavens are now affected by this. Well, the reason that God judges creation is because men misused it. Men began to worship it. Last Friday was celebrate the Earth Day. And lots of movie stars and, and the politicians got together talking about climate change, but they also got together to honor creation, Mother Earth. You probably read about this. That's what's happening to this day. They worship creation back in the day. Romans 1 talks about this, and they continue to do so. So instead of worshiping the creator, God judges them now for worshiping creation. So obviously, when you don't have the sun, you don't have the ability to grow food. And so now more death takes place. The fifth trumpet is the demons emerge from the earth, from the pit, and they torment people for five months. That's Revelation 9, 6. But nobody dies and people seek death and they cry for death. But this is God's judgment through demonic activity. Then number six is the opening of the army. 200 million soldiers are gathered together as a prelude to Armageddon. Now, before we get into seven bowls, of judgment. A few things take place because you can see that the, it skips from Revelation 11 to Revelation 16. So 12 to 15 contains additional activity before the final judgment of God is unleashed. And so you have the two witnesses. That's in chapter 11. Then you have the great earthquake, the end of chapter 11. It destroys and messages of the angels, and that's Jerusalem. Then three messages of the angels call people to repentance in chapter 14, verse 6, in chapter 14, verse 8, in chapter 14, verse 9. Three different angels calling for repentance, proclaiming judgment, and proclaiming condemnation. And then finally, the seventh trumpet is the unleashing of the seven bowls. And so you can kind of think about the judgments of God, the seals, the trumpets, the bowls, as a firework display. You know, initially it starts slow and then it gets up and up and up. And then the final few minutes of a good firework display is just massive fireworks nonstop. And you can kind of imagine this, that God just pours his wrath with no self-control, you could say, on the earth as final judgment. So the first bowl is terrible sores on all the people who follow the Antichrist. That's Revelation 16. Then the sea is turned to blood one final time and all sea creatures are dead. Then all the fresh water turns to blood. So this is the culmination of the preview of the previous judgments. Now the sun is extremely hot and people are blaspheming God still. That's chapter 16. The fifth one is darkness is all over the world. The kingdom of the Antichrist. 
Now Euphrates is dried up, and now the 200 million Persian army from the east is marching towards Jerusalem in order to fight in the Armageddon. And the seventh and final one is God begins to throw 120-pound hailstones from heaven. As mountains begin to move, islands begin to move, more and more earthquakes take place. And Revelation 16 describes the people's response in verse 9. Men were scorched with fierce heat and they blasphemed the name of God. Verse 11, they blasphemed the name of God. They did not repent of their deeds. The people are so hardened against God, even in the middle of the painful display of judgment, they just did not care. Well, that takes us to the Armageddon. And Armageddon is described for us in uh, the middle of chapter 16 of Revelation, Har Megiddo, the mountain of Megiddo. The area in Jerusalem is, right, this area, so you can see a picture of it. This is kind of the region, and it's massive enough where you could have a massive war. And what happens there, a 200-mile field area. Well, the Antichrist, because he set up himself in his headquarters, all the world marches in all this utter devastation to fight the war against Israel. And it is at this point that we get into the second coming. Okay. Now, Mark, would you like me to keep going or would you like to pause for a few minutes and then wrap it up? What's your preference? Keep going. Okay. Thank you. All right. So now we're entering the second coming. The second coming is in Revelation 19. Jesus shows up with his glorified saints on a white horse in all the passages that we've read about, right? Beginning in verse 11, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, he's got a satchel on his, uh, on, on his body. He is the word of God. He will press uh, the wine press of the fierce wrath of God. So basically, he comes to the fierce anger is turned, of course, we know who wins. And so the destruction uh, happens in this area as ultimately Jesus destroys all the enemies who are gathered together in one place. That's what verse 13 says. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. He's the word of God. And so now he's so ready to judge that it's a bloody spectacle at this time. And he calls all the animals who are in the skies, the birds, come and enjoy, assemble for the great supper of God. You meet the flesh of kings and commanders and mighty men and horses and on and on and on. The destruction will include vultures feasting on dead flesh. For the next 75 days, Jesus judges. The first thing that he does is he throws the Antichrist and the false prophet into the lake of fire. Today, the lake of fire is empty. They're the first inhabitants in the lake of fire. Then begins the judgment of the living Gentiles, the sheep and the goats. 80% of the world population will be destroyed in the tribulation period, but 20% will not. And they are unbelievers. Some of the believers will survive. And they will enter the millennial kingdom. But those who do not survive and are unbelievers, I'm sorry, those who survive and are unbelievers, this is where we get the judgment of the sheep and the goats. Okay? So Jesus is judging those who are Christians alive and those who are unchristians and alive at the end of the millennial, of the tribulation period. That's Matthew 25, 31 through 46. And so 
in the valley of Jehoshaphat, the valley of judgment. Mishpat is the, the, the Hebrew word for judgment, it's connected to this. This is where Jesus judges everything. Romans 2.16, this one is judge. God has entrusted all judgment to him, and he judges righteously. He cannot be bribed. He cannot be ever unrighteous or unjudged. Okay, so now he judges the sheep of the goats, and then the judgment of Israel takes place. That's Matthew 25, 1 through 11, the 10 virgins, those who were faithful, and the angels are gathering the elect. That's Matthew 24, 31. All this takes place at this time. And the resurrection of the Old Testament saints takes place at this time. They were not in Christ. In other words, they're not part of the church. They're not part of the bride of Christ. So when the rapture happens, they remain dead. Moses, Abraham, all of them. They remain dead. In the, dead in the sense of the bodies, are, they're not given physical bodies. Yes, they're in the presence of God as spirits, but they're not physically um, reunited with glorified bodies. They are resurrected. We see that in Daniel 12, 2. Revelation 6, 9, and Revelation 20, verse 4, because they're the ones who are going to enter the millennial kingdom. And the millennial kingdom is described in chapter 20. It all begins with Satan being bound for a thousand years. A thousand years is mentioned six times in Revelation chapter 20. And because of that repetition, we take it as the literal 1,000 years not a spiritual 1,000 years like the covenantal position holds. And so he he's bound, the demons are bound, the millennial kingdom is established on this earth. You can see a quick description of the millennial kingdom. Sorry, I have to skip all these passages. But here's a quick description of the millennial kingdom. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad not live out his days so the youth will die at the age of 100 and the one who doesn't reach the age of 100 will be thought accursed we know this is not the eternal state because there is no death in eternal state therefore this has to be a passage about the millennial kingdom which gives more reason to believe in the literal millennial kingdom that people die at 100 and they're considered to be young they will build houses and inhabit them. They will also plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They will not build in another habit. They will not plant in another eat. In other words, there's no theft in the millennial kingdom. For as the lifetime of a tree, so will be the days of my people. And my chosen ones will wear out the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. For they are the offspring of those blessed by the Lord and their descendants with them. It will also come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they're still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will graze together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox, and dust will be the serpent's food. They will do no evil or harm in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. So millennial life can be described with the description of this uh, screen. So you can all this passage in the Old Testament, the curse is lifted. There's prosperity. Jerusalem is the millennial kingdom. I'll quickly comment on that because there was a question about it. Yes, they're happening. Jesus is reigning from Jerusalem. People are worshiping him by offering sacrifices. We call them memorial sacrifices. There is no salvific value to them because Jesus is the sacrifice once for all. Hebrews 10.4 says this. 
And so therefore, it's a reminder to the people in the millennial kingdom that Jesus is the sacrifice. And the sacrifice is that symbolized the final and ultimate effective sacrifice of Jesus. So they do take place in commemoration of his work for us. Then you can see the Gentiles are part of the kingdom. They're blessed in Isaiah 45. The, universe, the God, knowledge of God is universal. And Jesus reigns righteously. Now, this is for a thousand years. And the purpose of the millennial kingdom is to fulfill the promises to Israel, to Abraham, to David, to all the patriarchs, to all the people of God, that ultimately God will give you the land that he promised. And Jesus, the true heir in the Davidic dynasty, does reign and ultimately goes into eternity forever and ever. But we have to understand that and this, so far, there is no passage in Scripture, not even Joshua 24. I know that came up in the question as well. That if you begin to look at the boundaries of what God promised to Abraham, Israel has never ever had control of all that territory. They never had control of all that territory. From the Euphrates to the Mediterranean Sea, from all the way far north into Syria, and all the way far down into Egypt and beyond. So that area, they got close, but they never fully controlled it. In other words, the fulfillment of that promise in, Ab in Abrahamic times is fulfilled ultimately in the millennial kingdom. So Joshua 24, 23, 24 is, yes, God gave them the promises that he made, but not the full extent of them. Well, at the end of the millennial kingdom, remember I said, there are two types of people that enter the millennial kingdom. The glorified saints who come down with heaven, fight the war, Armageddon, and then when all the destruction has ended, the judgments are over, they enter the millennial kingdom, and that is referring to us. We reign with him. The apostles judge with him. And then those saints who were saved in the tribulation, the 20% who didn't die, some of them are believers, others are not, and they enter the millennial kingdom, but they don't have glorified bodies. It doesn't say that they gain, get a glorified body, at the end of the judgment before the millennial kingdom is launched. Therefore, they enter, they're able to create, they get married, they give birth to children. Some of them die at 100 years of age, as they 65. But some of them live. And ultimately, at the end of the thousand years, not all of them believe in Jesus Christ, even though Jesus is alive. Jesus is reigning righteously in Jerusalem. The sacrifices are taking place. There is so much reason to believe in Jesus as Savior and Messiah, yet some don't. And so now it says that Satan is released. In verse 7 of Revelation, after a thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison. He will come out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for war. And they will ultimately rebel and fight against Christ. Now, Gog and Magog, quickly, the difference between Ezekiel 38 and 39 and Revelation 20 verses 8 through 9, the different battles. And the reason is because of the details that are in front of you. So what is a preview Sometime in the tribulation, there's a war that is as devastating, as, as significant. That is the Revelation 20, God and Magog. And you can see the details. I don't want to go through all of them, but you can kind of scan them uh, yourself on the screen. And the ending 
ends with Satan being cast into the lake of fire. Then finally, everything is cleaned up. Okay? That takes us into the final judgments. The final judgments in verses 7 through 10 is Satan is finally judged and thrown in verse 10 into the lake of fire, the beast and the false prophet is. The Antichrist and the false prophet. Now it has Satan. And they're being tormented forever and ever and ever. Then, verse 12 of chapter 20, the books are opened. And, well, let me see if I can show you on the screen. There you go. The dead, the great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. And other books are opened. The book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. So you have two books. The book of life, which is about, are you one who possesses eternal life? Your name is written in that book. And then there's the other books, the book of works. So every single act that was ever done, every thought, every word, God collects it. God recalls it. And now they're all open for every single human. And the judgment is based according to their deeds. Verse 12. And so ultimately we could say we are judged according to works, either our own or Christ's work on our behalf. And so salvation is because we, we are, our names are written in the book of life. And so now the resurrections take place. Remember, up to this point, we've only had two resurrections. The resurrection of Christians in the church age, the marriage supper of the Lamb, and then at the end of that, you had the resurrection of the Old Testament saints to get them into the millennial kingdom in order to celebrate and experience the promises given to Abraham. Now you have the resurrection from the sea and Hades, which is hell, is now giving up the dead so they can be judged. And so everybody now who's ever died, it doesn't matter where your body is, you are being judged. Verse 14, this is the second death. Now, the lake of fire. And so now you see in verse 15, if your name was not found in the book of life, that is eternal life, stoops thrown to the lake of fire. All the unbelievers, and then hell gives up the dead. They're judged, and they are thrown into the lake of fire if their name was not written in the eternal book of life. Then we can add another judgment, and that is heavens and earth. We saw that earlier today in 2 Peter chapter 3. In Matthew 24, 35, it talks about creation being judged as well. And so now that brings us into the eternal kingdom of God, the new heaven and the new earth. And so Isaiah 65, 17 says, Behold, I create new heavens and the new earth. The former things will not be remembered or come to mind. And that is where you get into Revelation 21 and 22. And you have imagery in Revelation 21 and 22 that reflects the new heaven and the new earth of Isaiah. That reflects the life of the Garden of Eden, the, the river of life flowing, the, the tree of life. There's no more tears. There's no more death. There's no more crying or pain. All that is reflecting the eternal heaven and the eternal earth. And the New Jerusalem is a part of that. And so if you think about the New Jerusalem, you can imagine it in this way, just visually. 
something. But here you go. If you want to do the measurements of the New Jerusalem, this would be the size, the massive size of the New Jerusalem, 164,000 square miles is what this area covers. But we're talking about 2 million square miles. It's like 14 states of California put together and on and on and on. So you can get into all the statistics of all this. But remember, you're talking about walls. You talk about no sea because the sea was tumultuous and deadly and people were afraid of the sea. And so the idea of no sea is not to tell people there's no surfing in heaven. It's to say there's no more turmoil. There's no more pain. There's no more death to be afraid of. And so you have this massive prophecy of the New Jerusalem and the walls are 200 feet wide. The widest part of the wall of China is 27 feet wide. I'm talking about eight or so times wider. It's not because there's danger from the outside. It's because God is trying to symbolize security, protection. There's no more sun because God is the sun. There's no more need for the light because the lamb is the light. And so all the language that we get from Revelation 21 and 22 symbolizes bliss, perfection, security, safety, stability, prosperity. And we end with a quote from Spurgeon. Oh, to think of heaven without Christ, it's the same to think of hell. Heaven without Christ, it's a day without the sun. It's existing without life. It's feasting without food. It's seeing without light. It involves a contradiction in terms. Heaven without Christ, it's absurd. It's the sea without water, the earth without its field, the heaven without the stars. There cannot be a heaven without Christ. He is the sum total of bliss, the fountain from which heaven flows, the element of which heaven is composed. Christ is heaven, and heaven is I hope that is ultimately your greatest desire is not the streets of gold and pearly gates. It's the fact that we're going to be with Christ forever and ever and ever. All right. We'll end here and then I'll follow Mark's lead on when we'd like to start the Q&A.